0: Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Psalm 2 is where we find ourselves this morning. We just finished a, a several months working through the Sermon on the Mount. And this morning, I thought it would be wise for us to pause and do a standalone message on Psalm 2, and the reason that I chose Psalm 2 as our text this morning is because, if you haven't noticed, we live in a tumultuous world where uh, it seems like war and hostilities and cultural upheaval are ever-present on the news. I think to some degree it's always been like this, but it just seems to be more frequent and apparent and in our face. And also, if you haven't noticed, we are in the middle of, at least in my lifetime, I'm 45 years old, at least in my lifetime, it is definitely the most contentious political campaign that I have witnessed in our nation's history. Now, there may have been more for contentious in the history. I mean, I think presidential candidates used to shoot each other or something when they were, you know, back in the 1800s. Who knows? But certainly, as Bible-believing Christians, uh, our hearts are uh, broken, really, at the state of our culture. And this text this morning that we're going to read, I believe, gives us great hope and reorients our trembling hearts and fastens them to a sovereign king who rules over the nations so with that let me read psalm 2 and then we'll work our way back through this text and then we'll make some application before we're done by the way um before i read uh you know that vbs that we're doing this summer in july uh really excited we've had a couple kids camp type things that we've brought in other ministries to do this summer we're doing it ourselves. And so we're going to need volunteers. We're going to let you know about that in a little bit. But that VBS curriculum was written by our very own Will and Karen Ann Hawk. And they wrote that curriculum as a, 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 as a ministry to Clement, Clement Arts, which is a wonderful local ministry started by Brad Griffith, who used to be a member of Crosspoint, but now he's a worship leader at Westminster Presbyterian, a, church, a sister church that we love. And Will and Karen Ann wrote that curriculum As a a blessing to Clement Arts, so that they could use that curriculum to help raise money for adoption. So, um, just really excited about uh, that VBS coming up this summer. Um, All right, little rabbit trail back on the main trail here. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us understand His Word. Father, we are so grateful that we can gather and read and pray and sing and preach freely that we can exalt in the glory of your mercies I pray for believers in Jesus that are gathered here today that our hearts would be simultaneously convicted and encouraged and that we would be more prepared to be winsome and joyful witnesses for the sovereign king as a result of our time together looking at your word. And I pray for my friends that are in this room who are not yet trusting in Christ. Some of them are aware that they do not believe and they're here investigating or maybe by invitation. And there are likely some in this room, Lord, who are self-deceived. They think that they are right with you, but The reality is by their works, by their life, they deny the very thing they confess. Lord, for those unbelievers, would you draw them to faith in Jesus? Would they see and savor and put their hope in the only true king that we have sung about this morning and that we will think about as we look at this text? Father, we pray that you would do this all. For the glory of your name, for the joy of your people, and for the salvation of the lost that your son died for, and that you have guaranteed you will give to him. Do this, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So, a little background on this psalm this is a psalm of David. If you notice in your Bible, oftentimes in the psalms, it'll mention the author, it'll say, before the first verse, it'll say, a psalm of David. In Psalm 2, it does not have that little text there or that little prescription where it says Psalm of David. But we learn in the New Testament, specifically in Acts chapter 4, which we're going to read from in a little bit, that uh, the New Testament writers do attribute this psalm to David. So we can be confident that this is David writing this psalm, writing this song. And the context of David, who is this promised King of Israel the context is is that David is really writing a song about his own rule and the rule of his son after him Solomon and it is in a sense a kind of a kind of coronation song where David is rejoicing in the Lord's sovereignty in putting him in power And David, as the leader of God's people in the Old Testament in Israel, is fighting battles against the enemies of God's people, the the Gentile nations, the Canaanites, and the other uh, people groups that are mentioned at times in the Old Testament that are constantly antagonizing God's people and setting themselves against him. And David is writing this song as a worship song for the nation of Israel to reinforce really his rightful rule over God's people and God's guarantee of victory. So that's the immediate context of Psalm 2, but like we've talked about often, all of the Old Testament is not just given as a mere history of the people of God, the Jewish nation, and it's not just given as a sort of morality tale by which we can learn ethics on how to treat one another. The Old Testament from beginning to end, from Genesis to Malachi, really is about Jesus. In fact, that's the very thing that Jesus says in Luke chapter 24 after his resurrection when he comes alongside those two disciples on their way to Emmaus. He asks them what they're doing and they say, well, there's this A man that we've been following, he was crucified. They didn't quite recognize Jesus at that moment, even in his post-resurrected state. And Jesus says, oh, you don't understand what the whole Old Testament is about. It is the law and the prophets, which is Jesus' shorthand for saying the whole Old Testament is meant, is given to testify about me. So when we read the Old Testament, we need to have Jesus goggles on we need to have jesus centered lenses on and realize that ultimately when the old testament speaks about a king or a prophet or a priest there may be an immediate person who that applies to in the here and now in that situation but ultimately it applies and is fulfilled and is pointing to the true king to come which is jesus So more on that later, but this psalm breaks down for us, I think, very clearly into four segments, and so we're just going to work our way through it and then make a few points of application at the end. Let's look at verses 1 through 3 again, and in verses 1 through 3, we see that the nations rage against God. Let me read 1 through 3 again. It says, Why did the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So in these first three verses, we see that the nations are setting themselves against God and his people. In the immediate context, again, these are the Gentile nations setting themselves against David and Israel. That's who immediately in verse 2 where it says against his anointed, meaning David the king. But this has, again, a long-term fulfillment. This is meant to be an earthly shadow of a heavenly reality that the nations of the earth are setting themselves against God and his anointed, his true sovereign king, who is Jesus. And we may ask, okay, Brad, I see that that's applies there to Israel, but how can we be certain that it, it applies to us? Does this, does this text, does this situation where the nations are raging against God's people apply to us? Well, I think it does apply to us. In fact, in Acts chapter 4, again, we won't take the time to read it now, in just a little bit we will, but the, uh, the early disciples... After Jesus has come and has risen again and now the new covenant, the gospel is open to Jews and Gentiles, these New Testament apostles apply this text not just to the ethnic nation of Israel, but they apply it to the church in the New Testament, God's people. And they are quoting this psalm in Acts chapter 4 that we'll read in a moment where the nations are setting themselves against God's people in the Old Testament to be a picture of how the nations are setting themselves against God's people, the church, here and now. So this text, I think, is a picture of how nations are constantly in turmoil. And we see this in our, in our world today. Nations rage, people's plot in vain, the kings of the earth, even kings and governors and presidents in our own country set themselves against God and His good way. They take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. For those of us that um, you know, grew up in a time when it seemed like Christianity was accepted, certainly maybe not accepted, um, not believed by a majority of our culture, but at least accepted as a good thing culturally, we have been, I think, sort of shocked that really quite literally in the span of just five to ten years, it seems like that has absolutely reversed itself. And now we're maybe when we grew up in the 70s, 80s, 90s, or maybe even further back, 60s, 50s, where Christianity and belief in the biblical God was accepted, if not believed in, at least accepted culturally and respected, is now scorned and antagonized. And now true believers in the Bible and what it calls for in righteousness, we are seen as a, an enemy of society in many ways. And I think that this is very likely going to even accelerate more and more. Friends, this not only applies to Israel, this is for God's people of all time, and we are living in a time when nations and the principalities and powers of our present age are taking counsel against God and his people. Well, what can we learn from this? Just just a couple little points of application before we move on. First, I think this is waking God's people up to the reality that has always been the case since Genesis 3, that the world in its fallen state is not a neutral place. I think many Christians that are my age and older have grown up with this false illusion that basically America is kind of like a Norman Rockwell painting where everything is kind of neat and folksy and safe. But the world never has been since Genesis 3 and the fall of mankind and certainly is not now a neutral place. Another thing that we can learn from this is that notice what the kings of the earth say in verse 3. They say, this is their their complaint. They say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. This has been the great lie from the beginning that somehow God is holding out on us, or that following God is somehow a restraint. Do you see how it hasn't changed since the beginning in Genesis three? When the Satan, in, when Satan in the form of a certain comes to, in the form of a serpent, comes to Adam and Eve and tempts him, he tempts them with this lie that God is somehow holding out on them, and he says to Eve, Look, "God has told you that you can't eat this one little fruit here." Well, God's doing that because he doesn't want you to become like him, and he tricks Eve into this great lie that humanity has been believing since then that somehow a good and holy God is holding out on us and to obey God is to clamp down and to reduce your joy. And that, friends, is the great lie. And people still believe it today. In fact, some people are repelled from Christianity because they think it is all the things that you cannot do, right? Right? Don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, don't go with boys and girls that do, right? God's going to get you for that, right? And people are repelled by this broken view of legalism where people almost don't stand a chance to understand the true biblical God because all they hear from legalistic, self-righteous Christians oftentimes is what God doesn't allow us to do. And that tricks people into this very same lie that happened in the garden that God is somehow holding out on us. And let me tell you, if you're in this room today and that has been your default understanding, oh, I plead with you, dear friend, to know and hear these beautiful words that in Christ, in God, Psalm 16 says, at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. There is nothing that this broken, counterfeit world can give you that God hasn't given you in Christ that is not a hundredfold times better. And that applies to everything. That applies to your money. That applies to your sexuality. If God has said that we can't touch it, it is good for us not to touch it. God is not Holding out on his people, he does not call them to begrudging, teeth-gritted obedience, but to pursue joy. That's a better point than you guys responded to, but anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll move on. So the nations are raging. And look at the Lord's response in verse 4 through 6. He who sits in the heavens wrings his hands, wondering what he's going to do. No, it's not what it says. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Immediately, that applies to David. He sets his king in Zion. But ultimately, who is the psalmist here? Who is David foreshadowing? He is foreshadowing Jesus, the son, the sovereign king, who God has set in his place, in his throne on Zion, his holy hill. The Lord laughs at the plans of the kings of earth, and in our culture, he laughs at people who scorn his people. This reminds me, when I was a little kid, I've told you lots of stories about my older brother, and um, some of you come up to me like, hey, man, I'm sorry about your childhood. Your brother was hard on (laughs) you. He was a great big In fact, just this past Wednesday, it was March 16th. And on March 16th, 1989, when I was a senior in high school, my brother shared the gospel with me and took me to a crusade. Actually, he forced me to go. And I heard the gospel preached. And it was the first time that I had ears to hear. And on March 16th, anniversary was this past Wednesday, I think I was born again. So my brother actually was the means that God used to save me. But let me get back to telling a bad story about him. <laughs> when we were kids, um, we had these boxing gloves and we had this, um, we had this deal where I would... He would get a blanket and cover himself with it, and we'd go out in the backyard, and he was three years older than me and quite a bit just bigger and stronger, just, in, uh, just big bone boy, let's put it that way, and, uh, and he couldn't hit me with his hands, but I could hit him, and so I would just like work his body. I couldn't hit him in the face. I could hit him below the shoulders and above the waist, and I'd just work his body, and, you know, I was just like a little gnat butting up against a tree. And, and I can remember being in the backyard where he would just deride me, can't you hit me harder? You know, he would just kind of laugh at my little, my little shots. And whenever he got sick of it, he would just kind of, and he was not allowed to hit me with his fist. And so when he got done with me kind of working his body, which never really had much of an impact on him anyway, he would just kind of jump on me and pin me down and make me confess all sorts of things while I was on the ground. <laughs> And that's the picture here, just as my brother was in complete control, (laughs) the Lord is in complete control. Do you have this picture of God here? Do you see this? He is in heaven and he laughs. Let me give you just a sample of the Lord's utter control over the nations in Scripture. In Exodus chapter 9, I'm going to read a bunch of scriptures, if you don't want to flip, just see them on the screen there. Exodus chapter 9, God's people are in captivity in Egypt, and all of this is according to God's sovereign plan. And in Exodus chapter 9, he tells Moses, in the middle of sending all of these plagues to the Egyptian people and on Pharaoh to, to loose his people from Pharaoh's grip. Listen to what God says in Exodus chapter 9, starting in verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let My people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. Listen to verse 16. But for this purpose... I have raised you up. This is God talking to Pharaoh through Moses. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show my power so that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Do you hear that? God is saying to Pharaoh, I put you in this position and I put you on a leash and allowed you to do what you would do in punishing my people just so I could arrange a situation so that when I strike you down, I am more glorified. God is in control of the pharaohs of this world. That's not the only example. Let's keep going. Isaiah chapter 44. This is what he says to his people. Now, you got to understand what the prophet Isaiah is, what his mission is to his people. God has raised up a prophet Isaiah. This is much later on, after, after the exodus, after uh, exodus and after God's people are rescued from Egypt. And now God's people are a nation and they have a king, but they are very disobedient to God. And God has raised up a prophet Isaiah warning them that if they continue in their obedience, a foreign captor, Babylon, will come and this foreign nation, Babylon, will conquer them. He's warning them that that's going to happen. But then he says that as this nation, Babylon, conquers you, I'm going to raise up another foreign power, and this foreign power with this king named Cyrus is going to conquer Babylon, and this foreign king that I've raised up is going to treat you better than the Babylonians did. It's like God is arranging everything according to his sovereign chess game. Listen to Isaiah 44. Let's start in verse 24. Isaiah 44 and verse 24 through 28 Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. He's speaking to the nation of Israel. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and. I will raise up their ruins. So what's happened is he's prophesying about how Babylon will march on Jerusalem, destroy Jerusalem, carry away a great number of Jews back to Babylon and the Jewish people will be in Babylonian captivity and the city of God will be in ruins. And he's saying that I'm sovereign over all of that And next verse we're going to get to, I'm going to raise up another king, a Persian king of another empire to come conquer the Babylonians and to take the captors, take the the slaves of the Babylonians, which is my people, and be gracious to them and let them go back so that they can rebuild the land. And this is what he says in verse 27, who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers. Verse 28, who says of Cyrus... He is my shepherd and he shall fulfill my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built. And of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Now here's the point, friends. Cyrus was a Persian king who did not exist yet. Cyrus is not going to be born for another hundred years. And God, I know this is, come on. Get with me. Don't don't get lost. Whenever we open the Old Testament, people are like, oh, God. Come on, lock in. This is such an important point for you to see. God's people have been taken captive by the Babylonians, and they've been carried away. And God is prophesying that this is going to happen. And then he's prophesying to the Babylonians and to his people, I'm going to raise up another empire called the Persians, and I'm going to set a king over them called Cyrus. And Cyrus is going to come conquer the Babylonians. And now what was the Babylonians is going to be his, the, cap, the, the Israel. And now Cyrus is going to be good to Israel. And Cyrus is going to allow God's people to go back to Jerusalem. None of this had even happened yet. Cyrus isn't even a twinkle in his daddy's eye. He is a twinkle in his great grandpa's eye. And God is saying, this is what is going to happen. Friends, God is in complete control of the nations. He's in complete control of the presidency of the United States. He's in complete control of the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, and any other party that may want a party. God's in control of that party. The proverb says in Proverb 21, verse 1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. And listen to Acts 4, where the early disciples quote this psalm, where we think there's some evil stuff going on now. And there is. I'm not minimizing that at all there's evil in this world, there's evil in this nation, there's evil on both sides of the aisle. There's nothing, though, that has been more evil and more heinous and more wicked than the crucifixion of the Son of God, God himself in the flesh, that we will gather next week. We gather every week to celebrate this. We preach the resurrection every Sunday, but on Easter Sunday, we will gather to extol and exalt and worship the beauty of the crucified Son of God and the risen Son of God. Nothing, there has not been anything that is more evil and heinous than that. And even that is arranged, did not sneak up on, does not surprise, but in fact was ordained and planned for God. Listen to Luke writing in Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Oh man, there's the sovereignty of God and human responsibility right there, right next to each other. It's according to God's sovereign plan that Jesus was delivered up, predestined to take place, but yet God still holds these people, sinners, all of us, who crucified and killed Jesus, by the hands of lawless men. Verse 24, God raised him up and loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Verse 25, now they quote our psalm, Psalm 2. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. He is at my right hand that I might not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the passive of life. And you will make me full of gladness with your presence. And so we see there that God is in complete control. The Lord laughs. And then what does he do? He puts the son on the throne. Let's read verses 7 through 9. I will tell of the decree The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So again, immediately, this is David speaking about what the Lord has said to him, but it is picturing and foreshadowing what the Lord is saying to the true king, Jesus, and notice what he says to his son, David, and then ultimately Jesus. He says, ask of me, and I will make all of these nations that are scorning us and our people, that are setting themselves against us, I will make them all your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And those that do not submit to your kingly rule, verse 9, he says, you shall judge them you will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now one thing I want us to note real important here in this text before we move on to the last few verses is do you see where it says, the Lord said to me, Lord said to me you are my son, today I have begotten you. When we see that word begotten, I think we tend to think of birth or we tend to think of the incarnation of Jesus. But in the New Testament, the Apostles quote this verse from Psalm 2 and they apply that word begotten not to the incarnation or the birth of Jesus, but to the resurrection of Jesus. Look, look at Acts 13, it'll be up on the screen, starting in verse 32. And this is Paul preaching at Antioch and he says, and we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. And so Paul is saying that everything in the Old Testament is about the resurrection of Jesus, as it also was written in the second psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And so the Apostle Paul, Luke, the writer of Acts, Is saying that what ultimately verse 7 in our psalm is speaking about is that the way God will establish his rule is by sending his son and causing his son not just to die for his people, but to rise in victory in his resurrection, whereby he reigns over all the earth. And friends, that's the story of the gospel that Jesus doesn't just die for our sins absorbing the punishment and wrath of God that should have been ours but he rises again in victory and now because he has conquered death and sin and the grave he is victorious. And the Son inherits the nations and Jesus asks the Father for the nations and when the Son asks, the Father gives. Listen to John chapter 6, verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. Listen to verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do the my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day for this is the will of my father that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus says that he will lose nothing that God has given him. And he will inherit the nations. And the former rebels that once scorned Jesus, when he rises again, he has purchased them and he will preach the gospel to them through his people and a great number of them will repent and they will be his. And those that do not turn and trust he will judge and that takes us to the last three verses where the lord warns the kings of the earth in verse 10 it says now therefore o kings be wise be warned o rulers of the earth serve the lord with fear and rejoice with trembling kiss the sun and the picture there is to give honor give honor humble yourself kiss the sun Lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Do you notice that God, who has promised to judge these kings through his son Jesus, who he has put on the only one true throne, who he says this son will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel? God is saying before he judges them, he is warning them in mercy to turn and to tremble and to repent and to bow down and kiss the son or serve the one true God. Friends, God is in complete control of the affairs of the nations and the affairs of men. And as kings rage against him, he has set his son on the only true holy throne. And through this son and the people that he has given him, he is calling out to the world, turn from trusting in yourself and put your hope in the true king and take refuge in him. So some application before we end. One, Christians should not be surprised by a decaying world again I think many of us maybe have grown up in a bit of a bubble and we I don't think we do ourselves any good and we don't do the gospel and a witness of the gospel any good when we act shocked and frustrated and surprised at the state of the world To the degree that we act shocked and surprised and really kind of inconvenienced, we reveal how little we understand of the Bible and the history of God's people. We also reveal how out of touch we are with the experiences of the majority of our brothers and sisters in Christ in the rest of the world who have never lived in a country like America where Christianity has been relatively accepted. It is the common experience of most Christians in the history of time to be a scorned people. And we belie our selfishness when we act shocked when we are scorned and marginalized for the name of Christ. Now, there is a difference between surprise and lament we should rightly lament the state of our country. I love America. I am a patriot. I can remember, in fact, my brother used to make fun of me when Reagan used to give speeches uh, in the early 80s. I used to stand at attention in front of the TV. (laughs) You little freak, what are you doing, man? Sit down and shut up. It is right for us to love our country. And we should lament over the state of it. But we should not be surprised about it. Second point of application. Our mission is not the American dream. Our mission is not the American dream. The nations, not nationalism, is the call of the Christian. And again, thank God that in His providence, He's caused us to be born where we are. But our mission is not the American dream. In the uh, Great Commission at the end of the Gospels, in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18, this King Jesus who has resurrected and defeated all of God's foes So Jesus, the one who has won these nations through his work on the cross, now commissions his people not to be the citizens of one nation primarily, but to be the citizens of his new kingdom who take his gospel to the nations, plural. But many American Christians have read this verse to say that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go on and have your conservative political stances and be angry at anybody who crosses you. And teach them to observe conservative political principles and be grumpy when anybody disagrees with you. That's not the call of a Christian. Our mission is so much bigger than the American dream. Talk about the American dream to those saints in Hebrews 11 who were sawn in half for the glory of Jesus' name, who the Bible says this world was not worthy of them. Three. Vengeance is the Lord's, not ours. As we live in shifting times, and a changing culture, I notice something about my own heart, and I think maybe it applies to more than just me. I have to continually guard myself against my default of anger towards people that I disagree with politically or towards people that I think are taking our culture in a direction that is not right And there is certainly a righteousness in our anger. But listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 12. He says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And may I just offer one little point of commentary about the current political situation in our country? I think. I think both parties are doing this, and I think virtually all the candidates are doing this, some more than others. I think they are tapping into a vein of anger, and I think some of the political candidates that are particularly popular are only popular because they are tapping into the anger of a majority of the American people. friends, the vitriol, And the anger that spews out of that is wicked. And it will win no one to Christ. It may win the White House, but it will win no one to Christ. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, not ours. We should trust God to do what he will do when he deems to do it. And as we read the Old Testament, we realize that centuries go by where God's people are in captivity. Don't you think that if you were a little Jewish boy or a Jewish teenager or a Jewish person living in captivity, that you would be just as frustrated, more frustrated than we are now saying, when will God finally make things right? Don't you think that there were generations of God's people in the Old Testament who died never having seen God's justice vindicated here on this earth? Yes! In fact, that's the cry of the disciples to Jesus even after his resurrection in the first chapter of Acts. They ask Jesus, okay, this is great. You rose from the dead. You taught us all these things about what really is important, like the life ever after. But, but, but really, Jesus, when are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Because it's just kind of about us and these Roman jerks who are, who are you know, in charge of us now. Do you see how easy it is for God's people to miss the point as if life is all about these 80 years? Oh, friends, I would love for the sky to split and Jesus to come and to set everything right. Come, Lord Jesus. But every moment that he delays is mercy. It's not him being slack concerning his promise. It is God's mercy because he's giving more time for more people to repent as his people are not crying about a culture but are taking his gospel to the nations. Four, having said all this, we should not neglect our role as citizens. Vote. Vote early, vote often. Realizing that God is sovereignly in control of all things does not negate our responsibility. It infuses it with teeth. It gives it reality. How does God work out His sovereign plan? Does He, on His throne on high, snap His fingers and just make things appear? Well, he could, but he doesn't. He uses his people and the means of his people, obeying him and making wise decisions in the moment to bring about his sovereign plan. Friends, if you are young and you are you were raised on reality TV and 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 you are cynical and sarcastic, you. Hmm, I, I, I want to have a talk with you. <laughs> And then, maybe with supervision, just to keep me out of jail. And then I want to say to you, don't be a young punk who's sarcastic about our culture. Vote. And if neither candidate in either political party is worthy of a reasoned vote, then write somebody in for the glory of God but vote and let God do what he may and know that the Trinity is not up in heaven wringing their hands wondering whether or not people are going to show up to the polls because the Lord sits in the heavens and he laughs and then finally the gospel calls us to a broken hearted optimism a strange otherworldly mixture of traits in one sense we rightly are broken-hearted about the way things are and we lament over our culture just as jesus as he's overlooking jerusalem laments over the unrepentance of the majority of his people and he weeps over jerusalem But yet he also knows that he will lose nothing that the Father has given him. So Jesus is brokenhearted and has a God-infused optimism. And Christians should, should posture themselves in that sort of way, and they should not complain on Facebook and they shouldn't say if blank is elected president I'm going to move to Canada what good does it do for the gospel maybe you should move to Canada so biblical Christians can take your place and be a winsome display for the gospel no don't do that because it hurt our brothers and sisters in Canada so stay where you are and get with the program (laughs) I'm getting off the rails so I'm going to wrap this up I'm going to say something that's going to embarrass my wife and cause me to deal with a bunch of emails this week. So let me just wrap it up by reading this. (laughs) Romans 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And friends, that is not so small minded that it means the president that we want for the next four to eight years. It's so much grander than that. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Think about that. The risen sovereign, enthroned king is interceding for his people. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And did you notice in verse 36 it says that sometimes God's people are killed but yet they're still conquerors. So that means that there's something bigger than these 80 years. Death is only God's servant to bring you into his eternal fellowship. What can man do to me? For I am sure, verse 38, that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, parentheses, ISIS, comma, Republicans, comma, Democrats, end of parentheses, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen and Amen. Let's pray. Lord, the nations rage, but you laugh because you have set your son. King Jesus, on His holy throne. And He has secured the rights to this throne through His perfect, sinless life, through His sacrificial death, through His victorious resurrection. And You have promised to judge the world through Your Son, as Robert read early, earlier, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. The only difference is that some will do it voluntarily and some involuntarily. Some will. Seek refuge in you before judgment and others you will break them like a rod of iron, and you have given it to your people to call out to a world, not to complain to a world, not to wring our hands in worry, but to with broken hearted optimism, infused with the gospel, to call out to all those that have ears to hear. Turn, turn from trusting in yourselves and put your hope in the true King Jesus who died for all those that would put their hope in his reign and rule. Lord, make us that type of people. And if there's anybody in this room who has not yet bowed to the one true King, Lord, God, break through their hard hearts, soften it, and give them the very thing that you require. Give them faith. Give them repentance so that they can turn from self-rule and put their hope in your kindly rule. Friend, if that is you, you don't need all the answers. You don't need... You don't need to look within yourself. You, you don't need to muster up righteousness. You need to look away from yourself and put your hope in Jesus. And you need to say, King Jesus, I've been serving myself. I now serve you. Forgive me. Make me your vessel. Use me. Lead me into joy. If that's you, you, you cry that out right now. You pray that right now. And before you leave this room, come speak to a pastor while we're singing or speak to somebody that you know to be a Christian and tell them that you are submitting for the first time to the rule of the one true King Jesus and you want to be one of his people. Do not leave this room today if that is you without speaking to somebody about that decision. For the rest of us, Lord, may you fuel us with God besotted, spirit empowered, Christ centered, broken hearted optimism for the glory of your name and for the good of the nations, I pray in Jesus name, amen.